we've got centrist policies to attract a majority who do or do not care, who earn less than the mean wage, who are being offered things that can't fix it because we don't understand how it's changed, with no evidence that the policy's changed. Is that a fair summation? I'd say so. Ouch. Yeah, I think <laughs> it's, it, it can seem a bit grim. Well, no, um, you can't fix what you don't understand. Yeah. You can't improve what you don't understand. I'm here this morning with David Orney. How are you, David? Very well, thank you, Tim. That's good to hear. Now, we've got some very special guests with us today. We actually have Sam. How are you, Sam? I'm good, thank you. And we have Jaden. How are you, Jaden? I'm very good, thank you. That's good to hear. You guys are going to be our experts in today's topic. It's been an exciting time for you guys. It's an election that is very close to a budget. Could you tell us why you're excited about that, please? Because we're nerds. <laughs> yes, but you're enthusiastic nerds. Yes, very. We like enthusiastic nerds. Yeah. As as economists in training, uh, although not for much longer, uh, I I think having a budget and election this close makes everything on the economy and uh, on economic policy, which is very exciting for us. Mm. But yeah, it just means that we actually finally have something to talk to people about. <laughs> Speaking or of put which, them to sleep. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> well, here's the critical thing: do people want to listen? Mm. Like we want to listen. That's why you're here. But hopefully, the listeners want to listen as well. Yeah, but generally speaking, you know, if you guys have been wandering around looking enthusiastic for a few weeks now, uh, working on your article for the university paper, how have people been responding? Have people had questions? Are people interested in what you're doing? Do people want to know what you've concluded through doing your research? What is the general literacy of the people you encounter in relation to how economic policy and an election fit together? I think our friends... Uh who do economics with us or are interested. Mm. But I found that I've had limited enthusiasm outside of that yeah. uh, cohort. It's a very specific sphere, I think. The moment we sort of step out of the people who study economics, mm. uh, enthusiasm and literacy really starts to die down. Okay, so that seems very important then that today. What we're kind of talking about is the issues, but also needing to remember that what we need to do is up well, my literacy to some degree, because I'm a social scientist, not an economist. <laughs> so, gentlemen, what is really significant for people who don't have enough economic literacy like me to know about what the two major parties are saying in relation to their economic promises in this election? I'd say the biggest thing of note is that the Liberals have kind of gone against what they traditionally would consider the more economically conservative uh, policies to both look into their traditional tax cuts, but then also a whole bunch of spending that you'd normally associate with the Labor Party, which means that the Labor Party has kind of been able to look at that and go, yes, we'll do all of those policies, and also here's a bunch of other stuff that we really want to do. Mm. Something that pops into my head after that, and if we're going too far off track, you guys can drag me back on because that's the role of people who know more than me. Last election, there was the criticism made of the Liberals that they'd essentially, you know, turned into Labor light. Many of the policies were similar. Is what we are seeing now that the number of economic options to get a reasonable outcome is quite limited? And as a consequence, 
the Liberals changing gear is not just a pragmatic way to win an election, but also an acknowledgement that both parties are centrist, our problems uh, can only be dealt with in you know, a, a narrowly defined way? I'd say so. Yeah, I, I think it can. With the, the Liberals, they've really been under pressure uh, this term in particular, losing majority government uh, with you know, the assassination of Turnbull or the very public uh, assassination. So they've they've definitely been forced to neutralize some of those attacks that they suffered from in the last election. So it is definitely a pragmatic thing. But, you know, there are there are a few systems, I think, compulsory voting in Australia, a few things that sort of force parties to consider very centrist uh, options because elections are always won in the middle uh, in this country. Elsewhere, it can be a very different scenario yeah at the end of the day, you've got to convince people who have to turn up so what it means is it stops us getting you know absolute extremist policy on either side mm-hmm. as a consequence of them recognizing that they have to you know meet this middle ground's desire for not too extreme policy so if we you know take your point that labor are the ones that seem to be doing something that makes them look more like state builders or state reformers, to what extent have their policies also been affected by that need to grab the middle? Is it as obvious or or less obvious because they seem to be in a position of a bit more power going into this election? The thing that I always look to whenever a centre-left party is seen as more centre than left is that Labor's big thing is they're arguing that their tax cut's actually bigger which is not something that you typically associate with a left party. So whilst the Liberals have had to dip into spending to get the economy more up and running, Labor isn't leaning into more spending like you'd sometimes expect. They're doing spending but also bragging about their tax cuts as well. So we're really seeing an interesting variant in terms of Australian elections that we're seeing both parties pay more attention than usual to trying to grab this critical centre that if they didn't have to vote, may not actually care enough to turn up. Yeah, I think a lot of it's going to be trying to grab attention, the attention of voters who have probably become switched off and disillusioned after not just the last six years, but probably the last decade. How does that fare for a, a party like the Liberals, who are just seen as these classic economic managers? You know, like the good economic party. Like, is it is is that disillusionment? Is that faring well for them in this election, do you think? Or I'd say it's helping them, especially after the budget came out and they were able to take their back in black yeah, back in statement black. through the ringer. So I think Even though it wasn't technically true, we don't yet have a have a surplus. We have one forecasted. We have a technical future surplus. Yes. Mm. Um that's also ignoring the per capita recession we're currently going mm. through. Um, which means that despite the fact that the economy is still growing, so we haven't had any negative growth that would constitute a recession. If you look at the economy per the number of people in the country, we've mm. actually gone backwards. Which which shows that population growth is actually pushing up our GDP figures. Mm. Um, so, gee, migration is a good thing. Mm. Who would have guessed? Oh, migration for the pollies, at least, is a good thing because that mm. means that they can make their government look like a good GDP when the well, people are stuff. Well, they're not... They're not getting anything out of it. It makes it look like we've got economic activity that's Mm. beneficial for everybody that politicians can ride on top of. Because consumption is up, I suppose. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
And that's that's pretty much the number one way of papering over any uh, actual real downturns in the economy, if you like, uh, by just importing more people. And more people have to buy more things. They have to buy food. They have to buy electricity, water. Mm. And that uh, bumps up the uh, the domestic product. And uh, that's how you get positive growth for 26 years in a row. So isn't there an incredible irony in this that the right traditionally argues that the best way to improve the economy is to not bring more people in and put more stress on the system. That there's such a policy gap between the policy and the reality. Almost, for me, suddenly makes sense why they were arguing against the boat people because it made it look like they were arguing against that immigration front Mm. without actually impacting the largest majority of people coming into the country, which is by plane. Mm. Mm. The the win for Scott Morrison, I think, was him reducing the number of immigrants that we were taking in per year from 190,000 to 160 i think yeah Yeah. um and the place where they bragged about making the biggest cut they only reduced it by two percent or something like that yeah because we'd already were only uh uh, having about 162,000 a year so it was a pretty meaningless cut but it's all about perception i guess a critical thing then if people are so important clearly we need them spending money that makes gdp look better do we have any sense from what either party has said or just any research you guys have done what it would actually cost and what the potential time frame would be to actually do something about Australia's crumbling post-World War II infrastructure? Mm-hmm. Uh, infrastructure is always tricky. I think in Australia in particular because we're such a vast continent, the scale of our... Yeah, it's a nightmare. Here. Yeah, compared to any other country just to the low population density mm-hmm. everything costs more and it's it's always going to be required it's going to be a huge investment it's never going to balance out i mean yeah. take the mbn is a classic example of something which the government on the budget has generating some return 20 years down the track but it looks like it's just going to be a 50 billion dollar write-off you're just a black hole because if 5g actually works how many people will just transcend the garbage cable yeah. Straight to something fast. Yeah. All yeah. those all those people on the uh, on the mixed technology yeah. uh, system that Turnbull introduced probably getting at best twenty megabits. When five G comes out, they could get triple that yeah. for the same price. Yeah. Well, I think I just got NB into my house, and we still are on the satellite that we're using instead because that's fast. It's fast and reliable. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you know the infrastructure thing. That's one of the things we could either talk about forever, going all the poor examples. But I think we've got the critical point when you've got this few people and this bigger place. Infrastructure is always going to be a problem. So that taps back into our people argument that a few more people spending a bit more money really isn't going to make our infrastructure situation much worse than it is. The problem is really the distribution that they're only in capital cities. Mm. So is there any nuanced way we can understand? infrastructure spending in relation to big cities is there any way at least in a big city you can get your infrastructure right in an economically sustainable way or even there it's just a bottomless pit you just do it because you have to but never really you know break even there is some infrastructure spending uh, even in within the liberal party however they have determined that they need to balance it with other things so right. something that was really beat home by uh, the Greens uh, at the moment is that there's more money being spent on the Cairns Ring Road than climate action per capita um, in the Liberals' proposed budget. So if you're going to do infrastructure spending anyway, you really have to 
choose where you're not going to yeah, spend on Yeah, it's going to be about priorities, I guess. Yeah. Um, I mean, the Liberals have, in their latest budget, they, they are saying that they've got $100 billion worth of infrastructure spending over the forward estimates. Now, that who knows whether that eventuates. That's over the decade. Um, but uh, a, a large amount of that will be focused on the capital cities. Um, yeah. You know, taking Adelaide, there's a huge chunk of money going to the north-south motorway. Yeah. Um, you know, Sydney's got its, uh, I mean, Brisbane's got its cross-river rail mm-hmm. uh, thing. Sydney's got its new metro system that they're currently tearing up the CBD for. So it is happening, but it, it I guess for a lot of people, it feels like catch-up. Yeah. Um, it feels overdue. Is it also, I've heard a criticism that it's in electorates that they sorely need to win? Mm. So some of those more marginal electorates, if they get uh, increased infrastructure spending, uh, I guess the cynic in all of us can look at that and go, hmm, I wonder why they're getting so much more money uh, per per capita than uh, a very safe uh, liberal electorate, for example, but this or is very what, safe Labour. This is one of those things where we can say that because governments change every six to nine years, so what? Again, both sides privilege. So over time, we should have got a reasonable split of money. But the problem is we've been behind on infrastructure for so long that it probably makes it look a bit more overt at the moment when you know they're privileging marginal seats. We've got the thing of politics there. You know, didn't pay attention to infrastructure. Now it's playing catch up, and playing catch up is best done as a tool of electioneering. Yeah. 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 With such a small election cycle, I can it's probably very tempting for a government to look at a list of proposed infrastructure projects and then look at a list, a map of electorates and then choose based on that criteria rather than maybe what's the most uh, beneficial in terms of society or, or just even pure economics. Yeah. In terms of pure economics, we have the constant debate in Australia, it seems now, about what to do about energy, how we should power everything. Um, economically, gentlemen... Where do you think we should be going as either party getting anywhere near uh, a sensible answer? I like the Labour at least attempting to make ground in this front, like the um, 50% uh, renewable target, also the electric car. uh, Yeah, the electric vehicle subsidy. Yeah, Mm. I think that's moves in the right direction, but carbon pricing and carbon emissions trading seem uh, market solutions that have just been are not politically feasible. Again, we nearly had that and it, it yeah. you know, caused... Have they worked well anywhere that we could use an example to try and regain the initiative? Oh, they're always tricky, um, any sort of carbon pricing, because you're trying to price what we call an externality, which is uh, a negative effect on a, on a third party um, from a transaction... And that's what pollution is, really. Uh, You're providing energy to a customer, but you're producing pollution, which affects everyone. Mm. And that becomes uh, tricky because we don't know how how, what the cost of this pollution is to the general population. And and you even factor in the cost of climate change, for example. Like Both sides have modeling that supports their climate policies and the priorities that they're putting, the weight that they're putting behind their policies. And, you know, Labor will criticize the Liberals for saying, oh, their policy, uh, you know, labor policy might cost us $50 billion over 10 years, but that hasn't factored in the cost of climate change, which could be increased natural disasters, you know, lower agricultural output from, you know, more frequent and severe droughts, et cetera. So it becomes a bit of a minefield. 
with respect to what's the most economically efficient way to uh, to deal with this because there's a lot of unknowns and it would depend on your uh, outlook i guess so as gentlemen in your early 20s as your careers as economists go on modeling is only going to get more and more difficult because the number of variables that are truly variable is going to go up with greater volatility that a fair yeah the biggest thing that we're taught in economics is that it's a game of assumptions yeah and the other thing that we're always told is that economists is just brought out to make meteorologists look accurate yeah yeah um <laughs> at the after the labor announced their electric car policy and all of their climate action uh, the Liberals rolled out their economist from the Howard era telling everyone that it's going to cost a huge proportion of jobs and billions of dollars of economic growth and that it's completely unfeasible. Of course, this is this is growth that's yet to occur. Mm. So this is growth foregone and jobs foregone. It's not actually people losing jobs or, or people losing money per se. Um, but that's, once again, a perception thing. Um, I think the Liberals would like to have us believe that if Labor gets elected and introduces their version of the uh, the NEG, the National Energy Guarantee, with a 45% target, you know, Armageddon, economic Armageddon is going to ensue. As compared to real Armageddon, if climate change is yeah. as bad as people... Uh, uh, is predicted. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and this is this terrible balancing point, is we're, we're meant to trust in things to make them work. Growth really is something we trust in. There is absolutely no reason why it should happen, is there? People want it because it makes the world go round. Well, it never used to happen until the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, right. stability for thousands of years. Yeah. I mean, humans did lots of work and got very little done. Mm. Well, there's something else which is uh, the only people who believe in infinite growth are madmen and economists. Yeah. Mm. To, uh, to support the growing population, we need forever economic growth. Uh, yeah, but there's there are finite resources, right? There's yeah. a finite universe. You know, we can only uh, achieve so much productivity and and uh, use so many resources before we start to run out, and we are already running out in some respects. If the growth thing itself is not credible, then we need to be more efficient with what we actually you know, undertake. So, for example, something like the thing of. If we subsidise electric cars, okay, electric cars need to be charged every night. They take power out of the grid, but that is still less emissions than if someone used their petrol car mm. during the day. There we get an efficiency. Mm. Is either party or any of the parties really thinking in terms of understanding that we might be on the verge of a zero growth phase and that the only gains will be gained out of efficiency or is this beyond either of their orthodoxies? I feel like if anyone in any of the parties is considering that, they're certainly not going to tell anyone about that. Because it would just scare the sheep. Yeah. It's a growth and trust, so yeah. you said. And if everyone currently come out in an election campaign and say that we might be going for zero growth, that's a great way of uh, getting rid of trust. Yeah, whereas there's you know, a fantastic uh, an American researcher called Richard Heinberg who wrote a book called The End of Growth. And you can take Richard's arguments as saying we may be on the verge of 50 years of no growth. Mm. And when you break down all the reasons for it, uh, I have no reason with all the research I've done to believe he's not right. Well, Japan at the moment is... How long have they been no growth for? 
a while. Yeah, I mean, they, they've got a falling population. so Which it, which makes it not seem as bad. For yeah, them. it's all relative, I guess. You know, economic growth versus population growth um, would determine your living standards. But then, you you know, if you're working in dollar values, you've got to factor in inflation and exchange rates and it, it gets messy. But uh, in terms of pure increased productivity and uh, pure economic, real economic growth, it could be very well the case where it starts to slow down. I mean, it hasn't been anywhere near as high as it was in the early 2000s for the last decade. Mm. So it really does seem like we're entering a, a phase of low growth, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But no, it's just the phase we're in and we either adapt and evolve or we don't. Yeah. So you, you point, you know, you guys made earlier that, you know, we are really technically in a recession that no one wants to admit to. Mm. Last time we were like this was the GFC. Mm. It was technically a per capita recession. For two well. quarters, I think, yeah. Mm. So how long, you know, if it was two quarters then, how long we've been in it so far from what you can work out? Well, we've been in it two quarters. That's the minimum definition for a recession. Okay, so it just means that that's enough to say that you can put the label Yeah, on there's it. a trend, basically. Okay. Um, I think we're still waiting on this quarter's results. I think they should be coming out very soon. But... It's a bit concerning if it's going to if it's going to continue, uh, just because we have such a high rate of population growth as well. People can really sort of feel the decline in living standards. So when you're shoveling people in, which means there has to be more economic activity, and yet you're getting a recession, what it means is every one of those extra people was spending less, and we're all spending less. So you know, you, and in, individually and broadly, you've got a decline in economic activity. And. Uh, massive contributor to that is the slowdown of the housing market in both Sydney and Melbourne. Do we have a housing market or do we have a delusional housing bubble <laughs> based on the fact Australians aren't entrepreneurial enough to do anything but invest in property? I, I mean, know that was very loaded. I'll apologise for it before I move on. I mean, some economists have been uh, correctly pointing out that we've been in a bubble for about 15 years now. Yeah, like the wonderful comment that Mark Blythe made when he was talking at Google that the only thing worse than the Tokyo real estate bubble is the Sydney one. Mm -hmm. awesome he's comparing 1990 tokyo to sydney fantastic i thought shanghai was worse than we were oh yeah but the chinese keep artificially manipulating the market like any good political party does not not a good not a good example i suppose well whatever the real numbers are are just impossible to discern so again that raises the interesting point and again you can try and deal with my brutal comments about the housing market if you want or we can just snigger and move on but this is this thing of, of measurement. You know, Shanghai may have a terrible property market. We won't know because the Chinese change the rule on the market constantly on trading any and all assets that they don't want to destabilise. How much in Australia can you guys as young economists get real data? Okay, I know the ABS data is real. I understand how that works. But beyond that if we get a third quarter saying we're in a recession will you be able to go out and get data and try and work out why and how or will you have to wait for governments to release things what's available to you as independent researchers well for if you're looking at the micro levels individual households hilda is a, is a brilliant data set in that respect if you wanted to look that that sort of looks at household spending okay. uh, and it breaks it down category by category, very specific. 
it's very useful uh, to look at spending habits of Australians. So have you guys been diving into that for your article? That's something you learn about three degrees or just because you're interested? Uh, That was something I did over the summer for a project I did on private health insurance and why the levels of private health insurance in Australia are declining. Um, And so I looked at household spending and uh, the trends over the last couple of years and year on year. And that's why that data set, I mean, that's actually a restricted data set. So you have to apply for it. Okay. So you're in it while you're in it for an approved reason. Yeah. That sounds fascinating. So what you've really been looking at is how we got where we are now. What, what did you see looking at this data for a couple of months over summer? What's, you know, what leapt out at you as significant about defining where our society is economically? I mean, I only requested the section that was relevant to me. So okay. that would have been uh, household income and uh, expenditure on private health insurance and a few other uh, variables like age and whatnot. Yep. Certainly spending on something that's probably, ooh, I'm not sure if you consider it discretionary spending, but private health insurance spending has been down since 2013, I think, or 2015 rather, which is sort of a similar time period to where our economic growth has really started to slow down. I'm not going to pretend that there's a connection there, but it would be logical to assume that there's a, you know, the falling living standards are probably pressuring individual households to drop spending, even on something that would be pretty important. Yeah, I don't think we can call it discretion. We need a better word, don't we? Yeah. It's a thing you really want to do for everyone's benefit. With an aging population, you'd figure it would be even more relevant to keep spending. Yeah. So if anything, it should be going up or it should be remaining least, very stable. Yeah. Even if lots of young people were opting out, you would figure that with the predominance of the population that is older, that it would at least stay stable. But it's just a simple fact of, I mean, premium increases this decade have been on average around, oh, I can't quite remember, but it's like 6 or 7% a year. So three times inflation. Yeah. It's yeah. very high and that hurts people's wallets, basically. Mm. If, again, taking leaps because I don't have enough economic knowledge to go to the next logical spot, if we're seeing that kind of contraction in spending in households in a critical area like health, this then becomes a good explanation for why both parties have to pay more attention to wooing the centre who may or otherwise not be interested, doesn't it? Because they're the group that are going to be suffering this most obviously. You know, something like healthcare is going to be something that people at the bottom of the economic food chain probably don't have and haven't had. Whereas it's the middle where we're going to see this stretch and the effect on their ability to you know, buy the services and products they want. Is that a, a fair reading? Yeah, and it's also a, almost a debate about where that middle is. So, yeah, because the middle is never in the middle. Mm. The middle is where the majority... So in Australian terms, if we looked at household income... Where are the middle? Well, I think the medium income in Australia is... I want to say 49,000, but I can't quite remember. Yeah, because the mean is 55,000. No, the mean is higher. Oh, is the mean? The mean mean is average income, uh, total income pre-tax is something like 70-something thousand uh, because it's just below one of the top tax brackets. The median income is much lower, which says something about income inequality. Now, would you gentlemen, I understand that just. Would you like to unpack that? Because I think that's a really significant thing, saying where Australia's at. Well, it's... So the mean of the Australia income would be considering 
all of the money that's yeah paid as income in Australia divided by the number of people, whereas the median income is where the middle person is. Yeah, so if you rank them from lowest to highest yeah. incomes, the person in the middle mm. is the median. So the, the median person is 20 grand down on the mean. Mm. And the, for instance, the thing that gets wheeled out is that the Liberals tax cut cuts off at 45,000, I believe. Uh, 48,000, sorry. Um, so and it's not going to help this median person at all. No, and there's almost more people in the forty to 48,000, which is where Labor's targeting their tax cut yeah. more than from 90 to... There's yeah. no limit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Above 90. So what we really see there is, again, recognising this middle group are critical to winning means you policy to win. You don't policy to build or transform a country. Mm. So what we've got is... Short-term politics, it's about winning. Long-term policy may say something about what your party's ideology is, but also you may never have the resources to put into practice. So all we can really compare on is the desperate need to win now. And they're ironically behaving differently to they would traditionally, but aiming very carefully towards the centre, which is actually the median, not the mean, because if it was the mean, we'd all be a lot better off. Mm -hmm. Well, that's rather crappy, isn't it? <laughs> Do you think that this is a problem of informed consent in, insofar as in a medical profession, it is difficult to talk about informed consent when a patient doesn't necessarily have a medical degree? So when a doctor is explaining what the possible effects of a procedure might be, it, like the, the patient might not necessarily understand to the correct extent to have proper informed consent. Do you think the same thing would be true of economics in this in this election where we're not either talking about the recession or we're not talking about these not economic economic factors in yeah in, in enough in a higher resolution so that people are able to make informed decisions when they're going to the polling booth. I think that's typical of almost every election. Because mm. mm. Australian norm is you know financial and economic illiteracy. What's well, the international norm really? Is it? Okay. Um, it's the fact that cons it's it's the somewhat condescending argument that uh, people who are more well off on the left side of politics make to people who are typically worse off on the right side of politics is that by supporting these tax cuts, which at least initially seems like a real positive, I'm going to cut your taxes so that you have more money. For someone who's earning forty thousand dollars, the Liberals' tax cut will get you two hundred ninety more dollars. Mm. It's not really that much over a year. But if I cut the taxes of somebody who's earning $150,000 by the same amount, they get far more money. Yeah. Yeah. So it might be the same percentage, but the dollar value is is huge, yeah. um, which is what the, uh, the liberals have been trying to conceal. They talk about percentages and they talk about average tax rates and they talk about marginal tax rates. And it's probably very confusing for uh, most people who don't really have a very you know, because it's a very confusing world. It's marginal tax rates are horrendous, yeah. right? <laughs> Whenever you do your tax and understanding uh, how the wider economic world works in general probably takes at least a year of study. I, I know that economics enrollments in schools are dropping. I know that they're dropping at uni because uh, that's a thing that the school's been actually asking us to try and help, help with. So 
in general, it seems like the level of literacy is going to continue to fall because, uh, you know, it's just not taught. It isn't taught at schools and like mandatory subjects and elective and fewer people are doing it. And without that knowledge, you can very easily be duped, I guess, by sound bites and three word slogans. Which is exactly where we seem to have ended up, <laughs> which is kind of unfortunate. To extend this question of literacy then, because there are so many areas in which you know, numbers are dropping, they're dropping in anything that prepares people to answer hard questions. Economics being one, maths being another, most of the sciences. You know, consistently people are taking the soft option in what they study at school. Major problem if we want people to be able to run our economy and society later. But let's transcend that just for the moment because that's a bigger issue for another episode. Part of this question of literacy is, well, two things, I think. The right traditionally believes in trickle-down, which if you do enough reading you realise is garbage. Do they still believe in trickle-down? And do they still think they can convince us of it? I would say they definitely do. Well, the Liberals seem to, given the weight of the tax cuts are very much biased to those earning over $90,000 a year, yeah. um, if you look at them in detail. So that would suggest that at, at their core, that ideology hasn't changed. Um, I'd still say it's it's weirdly more center-right than far-right to a point. Okay. Well, that's an interesting distinction, Sam. Do you want to elaborate on that? Or it's something you know, it would take too many hours to explain or up to you? Well, it's the idea that at least if you look at One Nation or even the National Front in France, I think is probably a better example, not particularly pertinent to Australian politics, but nevertheless proves my point, is that they almost go back more economically left. So their populism leads them to be more thoughtful yeah. of the median member of their population. Mm. Okay, interesting. And you kind of actually see that here, though, because uh, take the nationals, for example, uh, uh, supporting what they call the big stick legislation to try and break up the uh, power companies, generators, monopolies, and oligopolies. That is not something a traditional centre-right voter would support, right? They mm. would believe in a market-based solution, not in governments just going in and trying to sort it out themselves. That's mm. a very uh, left, far-left uh, solution mm. traditionally. And yet, the further right you go, the more popular that idea becomes. So that's something present even here and all over the world, to be honest. If we look at our post-World War II economy, very much at its best was a mixed economy. The state did things everyone needed. It spent the money to make sure everyone had the education and healthcare that they could then leap out into a world where energy was affordable and, and get on with doing something. And then it all blew up in the 70s. Mm. But... Did it blow up, in your opinion, the two of you, because mixed economies are fundamentally flawed or we were just half-assed at managing it? Maybe too it, big, and tell me if it is. It's tricky to say. There were a whole bunch of exogenous shocks in the 70s as well, yeah, which yeah. is yeah. often shocks and other uh, stuff. goes ignored when you look at especially more neoliberal economic analysis. They kind of point to... Well, they almost point to them as triggers. Yeah, and of it's the it's it's problem. a very different system back then. I mean, 1970s, we were still on the gold standard. You know, most of the currencies around the world behaved differently. There was no free floating exchange rates. Um, so the way economic shocks were transmitted were was very different, and uh, it was actually very easy 
to destabilize the world economy uh, from just one major nation. I mean, it still is today. But less easy but, than it was. Yeah, it's actually a bit more self-stabilizing in a way. So to ask a question that then relates to your former thing and try and move us away from something that was clearly too big for what we're talking about today, if the further right and the further left traditionally see the benefit of being involved in the economy and using policy to shape it. This seems to me we're more on kind of the British definition of political economy mm. rather than the kind of economy we teach here. Do you gentlemen want to go to LSE and learn political economy properly so you can pull proper political leaders later? Absolutely, is this something... I do. Yeah. Okay. So LSE this is something is that economists aspire to in Australia to recognise that actually even if the mix state in its traditional form shouldn't be repeated something with more capacity to pull meaningful levels at a political level to get economic outcomes is still more likely to bring about a better social outcome? I think in Adelaide in particular, there is a strong vein of it because we have rather radical lecturer who is teaching a um, first year course in Stephen Hale. So as much as principal... uh, Principles of economics is what most people experience when they get economic teaching in Adelaide. International Financial Institutes and Markets by Stephen Hale, which is all about how current economics is really quite bullshit. Yeah, the financial system, how that functions. Yeah, Yeah. and then then there's a bit on, uh, on monetary theory. Uh, as well, which is where Sam's getting at, I think. Yeah, which yeah. which is more to the political economy yeah. idea. So, so I, I, yeah, because it's like governments don't actually have a huge amount that they can influence the economy with these days. No, okay. not unless they decide to take some control back. Yeah. So this is the interesting thing. What we have is two parties heading further towards, well, a coalition and Labor heading further towards the centre to desperately woo a majority who earn less than the mean amount of income, but with minimal ability to pull the levers because everything that can earn money and control the economy has been sold off. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Going, going back to uh, Mark Blythe, who seems to be our favourite economist. Yes, I want the T-shirt. <laughs> That's another T-shirt I want. Is that centre-left parties all around the world are just the second-rate enforcers of a creditor's paradise. So the, oh, no, there's a slogan. So the centre... <laughs> The centre-right uh, parties that really live in this tax cuts and the wealth will trickle down, current centre-left parties are really going, well, we don't agree with that, but our tax cut will be slightly aimed slightly lower than your tax cut. Mm. But we're Rather, still not going to become state or society builders. We're not going to be transformative. Is anyone in Australia proposing genuine transformative economic policy that would make more sense to a political economist who recognizes that economic things are pulled by political levers. Mm. I feel like that would require what I call the long view. Jaden, is that longer than you've been alive? Uh, potentially, yeah. Okay, uh, that's good. I like it. Yeah. Hold on you. I'm voting for you. <laughs> I, 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 think, um, I think those sorts of uh, decisions uh they require you know they don't pay off until 20 30 40 50 years down the track yeah they don't get me any political capital for exactly the next three or six years which is which is why uh, they're often not focused um or you know even mentioned very often i mean they still happen um we still have the occasional nation building project which is obviously not as important as the government will say it is 
but uh you know they're big steps in in the right direction i think is this that argument that you know the the economic success of john howard was paul kidding's work yeah i feel like a lot of the economic data that comes through in a given term is very much uh the product of perhaps the previous term you know you get the, things, the system someone else built. You yeah. get the result of someone else's system. The it, things yeah. that the government does now, at the very fastest, they'll take a year or two to take effect. That's almost an entire cycle. cycle. Yeah. Yeah. So, so should our terms be longer? Well, that, that becomes uh, uh, tricky because I guess you're talking about do we as an electorate have the patience to wait when the government's promising us things that are going to happen in five or ten years? Well, nastier question. Should incompetent people be allowed to be impatient yeah and that's that's the yeah well. <laughs> hey i said it you didn't it's fine <laughs> it also becomes a mix of wanting to balance power and also make sure that people can see projects through yeah so even if we have a five-year term to put an actual quite a large extension on the House of Representatives, mm. do we then have to mix up the Senate so that there's more times where different, where one party isn't in charge and can run the whole thing? Through yeah, and so that a... way the public still gets to influence mm. uh, policy, even in the middle of perhaps a, a sitting government. Okay, hypothetical. Very hypothetical. Five year lower house, ten year Senate, uh, proportional voting, so small parties can get crazies in. Relative to the Senate, yeah. So that they're actually represented, but also bring in some instability and show genuine diversity within the society. You gentlemen run treasury. First five-year plan, second five-year plan, state building. Give us some sensible policies. Well, there's lots of ideas, I guess. Who knows whether they would um, they would be uh, sensible or not. No, no, well, they're going to be sensible because you guys are making sense. So <laughs> I think it really depends on whether or not me or Jaden's in charge about how. <laughs> okay, well, one has a go, then the other has a go. Let's see what this looks like. What, what, the, what the sensible policies that have a long-term beneficial impact for Australia look like, starting from a clean sheet? I mean, I, I'm a fan of... Uh, trying something new and then if it doesn't work trying something else so I guess. Yeah, having the guts to go it was interesting it didn't work i've learned something add the knowledge revise yeah. so you're a good bayesian i can work with that yeah which is which is fine on paper but then you have to remember that you know this is, these are people's lives and livelihoods that you're playing around with with potentially experimental ideas and policies yeah, but how does this differ at any time in human history uh, I suppose it isn't at all, really, when you think about it. No, and particularly if you are compassionate and you try and mitigate the worst of your excesses. Yeah, it's not about Jaden wants a golden palace, is it? <laughs> now, do you want a golden palace, Jaden? We should have asked earlier. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe. No. <laughs> uh, do you want a golden doorknob? Yes, I'd like a golden doorknob. But um, Well, that's all right. You can have that now. Let, tell me about what these beneficial policies to build a better Australia would be. I, I think the harder thing is almost that if we were given control of the Treasury, it's we're operating within an economic paradigm which doesn't particularly 
facilitate that? I mean, it, I feel the bigger question is how much can we change? What mm. down to the very core of the structure of our economy? Like, it, could we completely change the way uh, the country operates? Um, things from really basic, like uh, how many hours a week are we expected to work? the sorts of uh, jobs we want to have. I mean, there's already a shift from traditional manufacturing and uh, mining and sort of old 20th century jobs to the more recent service style uh, provisions. Okay, now that, that's a good place for me to, to butt in because I need to understand something I don't. How do we assume people can use these services when they're also in a service job and only have three part-time shifts a week? <laughs> How the hell does this work? Mm, the problem with underemployment. Yeah, because underemployment, it seems, is going to be our predominant problem, that we're relying on service industries that will never give people enough hours to have enough money to spend to do any more than minimally consume. But if, we're, any... un- if we're underinsured, then we can use more of that money to pay for services. Is Until that... we're <laughs> sick and die. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've just deconstructed the whole economic paradigm and well, that, to the sorry i didn't problem. mean to well the, i didn't well, mean to wreck it so bad the one that we're currently in uh this is this is the problem i remember we were in a q a with uh, guy debell he's the deputy governor of the rba and uh one of the questions that was, that was asked was uh basically what's going on why why are we in this world where mm. inflation is so low but employment growth is is good we've got pretty low unemployment and the answer really is underemployment is very high. It's become very detached from unemployment, which is unusual. And Why is that unusual, Jaden? Oh, uh, well, traditionally, uh, I guess it's got to do with the old fashioned uh, workday structure where you had a part time job. There's one person in, in the nuclear family who, who worked, uh, nine to five, five days a week, uh, or six. And, um, and that's really sort of, uh, changed in the last few decades where service jobs now have different hours and jobs can be done. They're more automated. Yeah. They, uh, uh, I mean, that's probably the big one is technology change has really changed the way we work. We work from home. We don't have to be in the office all the time. Um, and some jobs just, just not don't need a person anymore to yeah. do it. So really what we've seen is social and technological change mm-hmm. yeah. leading to economic things that don't again like meteorology numbers made sense when the pattern was consistent with climate change Mm. the numbers don't make sense so we're seeing economic numbers now that reflect climate change in that there's been enough change in what people do and what technology can do and in trading hours being different and the social assumptions of how the economy works have changed enough that the predictability of using previous data doesn't work anymore yeah and that's a problem that the people at the RBA and Treasury are, are busy trying to figure out because a lot of the old models aren't working properly anymore. They've, you know, the old relationships have broken down and that's something that they need to try and work out. Okay. I think you've just answered my question that I didn't tell you I was asking. And that was, I asked you guys to go down this path of hypothetically, what would you do to see if we got to why things don't currently make sense? Well, and you got there, and it's because the paradigm has changed sufficiently that if we want different outcomes, we need different politics because we can't have different economics with that different politics that conceives of the questions differently. Is that too big a leap? That's pretty close to what uh, yeah. I think we were trying to get to. 
it's why it's why we didn't have actual policies off the top of yeah because okay. it's it's tricky to know what's actually going down on on the ground yeah. i guess uh, and so we're as as sensible economists I, I think no economist worth their salt would ever deal in absolutes they will always qualify their answers or they should because mm. it's so such an uncertain profession mm. and uh yeah trying trying to come up with a policy that would be sensible long term that would be sure to work is pretty much impossible oh, no, sure to work is a whole other issue <laughs> yeah but again compassionate socially responsible transformational again you know idealism with a a nice end, not a perfect end. But see, the interesting thing here is, again, let's go back to the beginning. We've got centrist policies to attract a majority who do or do not care, who earn less than the mean wage, who are being offered things that can't fix it because we don't understand how it's changed, with no evidence that the policy's changed. Is that a fair summation? I'd say so. Ouch. Yeah, I think <laughs> it's, it, it can seem a bit grim. Well, no, um, you can't fix what you don't understand. Yeah. You can't improve what you don't understand. How did we get to a point where no one understood what what, what our system is? My macroeconomics lecturer rather gleefully uh, came into class one day and said uh, that we're now in an economic recession uh, per capita because it, he was happy because it now means that we get to test out all of our models that we had for this economic recession so we can rule out dodgy ones so so he hoped that out of this he would get better models so he could provide better yeah. information later because the reason so we have to be guinea pigs for a while because the change is so great yeah because the reason okay. and the reason the that economics is called the dismal science is because we can never have a test case we can't run experiments yeah. no. we can't do a controlled experiment on on no. an economy it's just we only have one yeah. and we're that's, in it yeah which is the tricky part and that's why it can be very off-putting to try something brand new, something, you know, game-changing, I guess, because it could just all end very poorly. Okay. More questions out of thin air that make your lives miserable. I'm so glad I can't see your faces when I'm asking you guys these questions. <laughs> Tim, you can see Sam and Jaden's faces. Do they look happy? I mean, there's there's a slight sense of glee in like, oh, I get to kind of test out this uh, intellectual hypothetical, but then there's also just this look of dread, like, oh, I actually crap have to answer this. <laughs> like, guys, if you don't want to answer, just say, if, you, if it's David, you're mean, just say David, you're mean. Right. Okay. Different question for you guys then. Because here's one where I think you're absolutely the right people of the right age with the right knowledge to begin this process. Some of your peers are going to start the process of joining the Liberal and Liberal Party machines. You know, at some point between now and 30, the Kool-Aid will sink into their deepest veins and they will leave, lose the ability to think independently or achieve worthwhile outcomes. What do you want to inoculate them with? What do you want to teach them? What do you want them to understand so they are capable of beginning the path of improving policy? to potentially improve or at least maintain our economy and not let it turn into a flaming ball of poo? <laughs> I guess I, I still like the idea of, of really trying something a bit different rather than just tweaking around the edges. Okay. Um, it, it, see, it feels like the current system is sort of served its purpose and, and it's done well when all things considered over the long term mm. in terms of raising prosperity 
um, how that's been distributed is obviously a question for another time. But mm. in absolute terms, I think the the system since the early 80s has not been a bad one, but it seems like it's running its course. You know, ev- everything has its time. Nothing mm. is forever. No. So the question is, what can we do to, you know, change, replace, upgrade, improve? So basically? you would want to teach enough economic literacy and enough courage to maybe design something new. Yeah, maybe start having a look at how we can adapt the existing framework. What can we change? You know, will, will greater regulation in specific areas help, you know, improve stability? Maybe we should change our approach to growth at all costs instead to sustainable long-term growth. That sort of stuff might be like changing the sort of objectives that we have okay. might be a good one as well. I also generally like the idea of... Um impressing upon them the economic merit of recycling. Like, recycling's the wrong term for it. But in the golden age for America, there was increased taxation on the rich and there was also more strongly supported welfare to keep people up and out. Yeah. And the idea of that was that you brought the, you could bring the top down and you could bring the bottom up, but also the whole range that people lived in shifted up as well so the reality is that the first attempt at serious redistribution with a sense of social cohesion and a sense of social justice actually really did work so justice higgins in australia in 1906 the harvester decision an australian worker should have enough money to keep him his wife and three children in frugal comfort Hmm. bang you've just changed the game now we ended up with a zombie tariff-based protectionist economy 60 years later, but it didn't start bad. It just wasn't reformed. So we need that kind of courage again. But maybe a new version of that courage. Yeah, I, I, I think so. It's, it's looking at what parts of the mixed economy work, but also going with clear eyes about where the faults were. And it. if it's not logical to be in it, don't be in it. So it seemed to me that you know the mixed economy by the 60s and 70s, the state was involved in far too many things that you know it shouldn't have. It, yes, it employed people, but it didn't employ them effectively or mm. create things that society really needed. Yeah, and I guess that's the benefit of the market is that you're letting people decide um, what where the priorities lie, yeah. um, which is probably the most sensible approach because if people don't like it, um, they're just not going to get it. They're not going to use it. They're not going to yeah. buy it, whatever. So uh, there are definitely good aspects from all of the sort of systems we've had before that can be used and can be incorporated and still are, obviously. And it's just a question of where, you know, identifying where it's failing currently, what we can do, and then coming up with a new solution. So how important to this process do you think would be teaching economic history properly? So people could understand, you know, that the transition, say, from mercantilism to industrialization, transformed the world, you know, crushed lots of rich people and created lots of new ones, brought a lot of people out of agrarian poverty. Would it be helpful if people understood the transitions we've been through better than they do? Absolutely, I think. Economics does have sort of idea that the current bit that you're living in is how it's always been and how it always has to be it's a social delusion we all want to think this is a normal society yeah when we are very specific to our time Mm. yeah yeah i mean the world as it is now is not the same one it was 40 years ago no and obviously 40 years prior to that was very different too 
And uh, I guess because the change is incremental usually, yeah. unless it all comes in big one big rush, it can be tricky to notice. And in most of the stable democratic nations, the change is very incremental. Yeah, big things like World War Two changed the the direction, but not the underpinnings that you know built it. Yeah, we'd, we'd had social justice before. The mixed economy just got more involved, but in the sense also lost that thing of paying attention to what the society wanted because it was doing a rebuild after a war. So we get the strange combination of we get the micro, but then also a macro thing plonked on top of it. Okay, I've hijacked this today pretty badly. <laughs> Sorry, guys. It is your podcast. Yeah, that's true, but I still hijacked it. What would you two like to add that I've missed and then got to be Tim's turn too? Like, is there anything you desperately want to know? that I, I kind of got lost a little bit about 18 minutes ago um so I'm very much looking forward to <laughs> editing this one to relearn but yeah <laughs> Jaden and sam what what should have i asked you or what do you want to come back and talk about in you know in a month's time or i mean obviously in a month's time it would be interesting to see who's won <laughs> and where we're going next so that might be interesting yeah i'm sure you'd come back yeah i uh, i was probably expecting a Who's better? Question um, over the election. Who's better? Yeah, but to my mind, you can't, you know, <laughs> we needed to understand the system we're in. So now, if you make a who's better argument, we understand what system they function in mm. and their limitations. So if you, you if you can answer that question now, I think that is very significant because we understand what they're bound by. Yeah. Okay. I uh, I think it'll be very interesting to see. Uh, if Labour wins, because they are promising to change a few systems that have been intact for 20 years or so, things like the negative gearing, the uh, franking credits that were sort of introduced in the earlier neoliberal era, early in the neoliberal so Hawke, era. So Keating era yeah. stuff. That period of we've got to change this economy before the zombie tariff yeah. protectionist economy goes over the cliff. Yeah. Yeah. And then um and then they're sort of changing that back. And it'll be interesting to see whether that has the desired effect of um, I mean, obviously the goal is to try and reduce uh, income inequality and, and help balance the scales. And it'll be nice to see whether that will help improve economic growth and whether it will, as Sam said earlier, lift everyone up as well as moving them closer together. But there's a lot of a lot of things going on. It's a globalized world. These days our Living standards and our prosperity is no longer very dependent on what the government does or even what we as a population do. A lot of it depends on the rest of the world. So they're being slightly more courageous in a very bound environment. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it, it may require more um, interaction with other countries uh, to sort of deal with these economic problems that are a global phenomenon mm. rather than just what's going on here at home. Sam, what would you like to add to that? You know, new in agreement with that, or you got a, a different take? I think generally, with both sides working with their hands tied behind their back a little bit, are having to go after the centre. I think Labor's at least got a vision where it seems like they can imagine something different. Mm. Okay, and this is the fascinating thing: is that you know so often what the right wants most is to maintain what it's felt comfortable in. Mm. The left is always been more willing to do the uncomfortable thing of progress but in doing so puts its own future at risk yeah so there's a there's a not an economic tension there's a political tension of courage or lack of courage yeah but i mean in general um 
uh, labor is typically elected after periods of economic instability or, or depression or recession. The only exception to that being 2007, yeah. uh, certainly in recent times, because uh, that was pre-GFC. And back then, you'll remember, Rudd styled himself as an economic conservative. Yeah, but the irony is there, and we can talk about this in another podcast if yeah. you guys are interested, you know, Rudd didn't win, Howard got thrown out. Yeah. There's a distinct difference. Yeah, that's true. But that's um, that can often be the case, I think, yeah. in elections is, you know, oppositions don't win, governments lose. Yeah, uh, well, next podcast. <laughs> yeah. Can I finish by asking some specific questions? You were talking about negative gearing being, you know, that we're looking at scrapping that on the, uh, on the in the Labour Party. Is there any approach to capital gains? Or I'd, I'd actually like to hear your opinion on which of those two tools has been the bigger culprit for our current housing market woes? But is there any anyone talking about scrapping that, changing that? As in the capital gains tax capital discount? Capital gains tax, yeah. Uh, so I think the original rationale behind the discount was that getting taxed at 30% of the asset gain was considered very high given the rate of inflation. Mm. So the asset gains weren't actually in real terms, weren't actually that high. Now having such a big discount, because it's, it's, I think it's half, it's only got 15%. Now because inflation is so low, those gains are much more significant in real terms and removing that could help uh, keep it in perspective. If you like with respect to other sources of income, rather than it being such a large chunk of a lot of people, particularly because capital gains require capital, wealthy people are earning more income than uh, is arguably uh, reasonable through this uh, method. And that's potentially a cause of, you know, investor speculation in the housing market because they're not looking at it as a long-term asset that pays out rent, for example. They're looking at it as a speculative asset with a price that's going to increase next year or next month or whatever. Well, that's kind of what seemed obvious to me is that the capital gains tax is oblivious to what the actual asset is. It'd yeah. be the same on a stock as it would be yeah, on, yeah. on It's a house. grab. It's yeah. just a pure and simple grab. Absolutely. Do you think that, there, that the system would work better if the capital gains tax actually differentiated between different types of assets? I mean, potentially, if it if it was done well. I'm not sure that people um, necessarily trust legislators to be able to legislate. Yeah, I, I feel like if you got yeah. if you if you sort of made it an independent body to manage it, or gave it to the RBA or something, or an independent section of Treasury, mm. maybe you could solve that trust issue. But I feel like it could get very complex very quickly, okay. um, and then it might discourage investment which is also not necessarily a good thing. You want to keep a balance level. You don't want it too high and too speculative, but you don't want it too low as well. Mm. The one thing we know about taxes is that once they come down, they very rarely go, go back, back up, up. Yeah. because yeah. It, it relies on trust. And once investors see something coming, even if it's a reasonable change to balance out potentially an error that's gone before, they don't like that. And there's a chance that you'll have a capital flight as they all get out before this new mm. measure comes in. Yeah, that was that was the case with the GST before it was introduced, where there was a huge jump in consumption because everyone basically had their home renovations done mm. in the six months before it was introduced to save ten percent. You get those uh, phenomena whenever you're wow. changing taxes, mm. and I would expect to see something similar in the housing market if Labor wins before July, and these measures come into place. People buying houses or people selling them. 
Well, I, I suppose it would depend on the market conditions, but I, I think I'm actually referring a bit more to some of the stuff on trust yeah, so, uh, management. Mm-hmm. Some of the other policies probably more relevant to that. Uh, housing's a big decision. Because it's, it's, it's really strange. I've heard some ads on the radio of like literally calling out like oh the elections coming up like right now is the right time to put like get into property like, yeah um which has just been like that's seems like the opposite of what you should do when it's uncertain yeah because anyway. it's very uncertain yeah was, other thing i want to know we kind of brought it up was you've said you've kind of leaned toward labor here but like can we ask the which is better question is that going to be <laughs> is it just too hard is it just too subjective well, it's always going to be subjective it's just the the numbers part of economics make you makes it seem like it's a bit more um I, I think independent. Well I think Jen and I would both suggest Labour for this election. Yeah. But uh, I think purely just because their policies and their numbers are a little bit more realistic for the times that we're currently living in and what we could probably expect. Although I disagree with their need for a budget surplus that's even higher than the Liberals. That's arguably pretty silly if we are going to enter a recession in the future because we would rather have fiscal stimulus. We'd rather have a bigger deficit mm. uh, to help prop up spending in the economy. But I think overall in terms of the longer, slightly longer-term policy, closing some of these loopholes, reducing some of these economic distortions in the tax system could be beneficial. It's not all the way. Uh, I certainly feel that there's more to be done there. But yeah, it, it seems like this election, the Liberals are definitely on the back foot with the longer-term vision. The only thing they seem to have is the long-term tax cuts. Mm. Which may or it. may not happen because it's so far away. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like the opposition is campaigning like they're the government and the government's campaigning yeah. like, like they're, they're the opposition. opposition. Yeah. Which again makes it wow. this underlying thing. If it's not that you win election, it's you lose. And if you know you're losing, you do what it takes. Yeah, yeah. which we've seen, yeah. I think, so far. Wow. Right. Well, do we feel as if that's uh, kind of a conclusion? I think so, because I'm pooped. Yeah, no <laughs> kidding. Thank you very much, Jaden, for joining us. It was a pleasure. And thank you very much, Sam, for coming on again. This will probably be released before our other podcast. Mm-hmm. Will, so. Thank Glad you for coming on back. the first time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's it. And thank you very much, David. Thank you, everyone, and thank you, listeners. listeners you didn't think you were going to hear me after the end of the music did you i'm here today to say we now have merchandise you can have a blind insights t-shirt you can have a blind insights pin you can have a blind insights hoodie you can have a blind insights coffee cup all you need to do is go to oscast a-u-s-c-a-s-t dash network dot myshopify.com and click on Bind Insights and you can see all our products. Mm. Thank you very much to the Ozcast Network for their support and making this happen.